Welcome to Camera Ready and Able, the podcast that explores the intersection of media change and personal growth. I'm your host, Barbara Barna Able, and my calling is to help you tap into your superpowers, hone your message, and make an impact on the world. Today's episode is brought to you by the word audacity, meaning a willingness to take bold risks. If you are a regular listener of Camera Ready and Able, you already know boldly stepping out of the messy middle is a recurring theme. Here to discuss Audacity and how this has shown up in her own life and career is Zara Rasool, who is an Emmy-nominated director, writer, producer, host, and media entrepreneur. Her films have been screened at over 40 international film festivals, and her most recent work, still here, about incarceration and gentrification in Harlem, premiered at Sundance in 2020. Zara is also the head and editorial lead of AJ Contrast, the Emmy-nominated immersive storytelling and media innovation studio at Al Jazeera that Zara had the audacity to create in 2017. AJ Contrast uses cutting-edge technology to push boundaries of traditional narratives and amplify stories of underrepresented communities. Zara, it is such a pleasure to have you join the podcast today. Thank you. Uh, Thank you so much, Barbara, for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation. I always look forward to conversations with you. So you were born and raised in Mumbai and came to the States all by yourself at 19 years old. So, you know, growing up, I want to find out, you know, when did you realize, if ever, that even just coming here on your own was an audacious move? But did you, were you aware of a sense of audacity as a kid? What, what was it even like to sit down and have that conversation with your parents saying, um, oh, hi, I'm going to move across the globe by myself? You know, I think it was actually thinking about just the word boldness. There was a much more fractured relationship with it, I think. Uh, I've only been able to step into that in the past few years because Mm. when I grew up as a kid, the culture that I come from, you know, my religion, all of that informs how you're raised and your values. And and the thing that was instilled in me since I'm a kid is that you've got to be modest about everything. You know, you don't, you don't, speak about your accomplishments you know you don't necessarily demand something if you want it uh, you've got to be low-key and so when I came here and I realized that that is what I had to do when I had to advocate for myself or I had to talk about my successes it was it was very difficult because I, I felt like I was being arrogant I was being ungrateful I was being disrespectful um, So I I don't think I had that awareness growing up at all. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because I think these are attributes that many people associate uh, with America and American culture. And I do, you know, I have clients around the world and even working with some multinational companies and, and employees within those companies and understanding, you know, culturally, we didn't grow up like this and there's pressure within the company to be that bold person. Uh, And the reason I'm saying this is because regardless of that fact, whether that's an accurate perception or not. So many of us suffer from this. Is suffer the right word? I don't know. But anyway, have similar issues. And so one, I think there's a two, right? So many women. Yes. And and so one, I was going to say, so there is a universality to this aspect of it, but also the fact that, wow, you worked through this pretty quickly and at such a young age. And so that's where, you know, from this conversation, I kind of want to start with is like, do you, do you ever even like walk through a sense of the process? Like, did, was there an aha moment? Did you observe someone or something inspired by something and said, okay, I can do this and how you, you talked yourself into it. And because it's taken me many, many more decades than you, Zara, to get to this point. 
in general, like going back to the incident of like, you know, how, what was the conversation like with my parents when I told them I wanted to move across the world to go study in a country that I didn't have any family? Well, you know, my mother has, has been generally more supportive of, uh, you know, my adventures. And, and that's because I think, you know, she kind of identifies with me and, and felt like she was similar when she was growing up. And then my father is a lot more protective of me. And we're only two of us and I'm his only daughter. So he always felt like, you know, he needed to provide me a shelter, a safe place. And, you know, going, going to America to study was, for him, like, it's something that he could not fathom, like his only daughter going off there. I mean, also the context of this is like when I came here in, in 2000, 2009, it was much closer to 9-11. And, you know, there was a lot more Islamophobia in the world and specifically in America. So I think all of that played into, you know, his perceptions of being here and protectiveness. But, you know, I think I was like, I was so sure that I wanted to come and I wanted to study here and I wanted to study journalism particularly. And, and I chose here because in India, we didn't have journalism as a course of study at the undergraduate level. Uh, it's much more general and you can specialize in your, when you go for your master's. But in America, because, you, you, you know, you have a much more sort of freer education system, at least at university, you can you know, take different courses. It was really, it was appealing to me as somebody who doesn't like to be boxed in. Be like, oh, I can take different classes and then figure out what I want to do. And when I proposed that to him, he knew just telling me no was not going to work. Uh, I think he'd seen that in me since I was a kid. And he was like, well, you know, I, I can't afford it. He's like, even if I wanted to let you go, I don't have the money to pay for your education in, in the U.S., and as an international student, you know, I mean, everybody knows studying in, studying at an American university is expensive. But then if you're an international student, you're paying almost three times the tuition that, you know, uh, locals and nationals pay. So my way of always approaching is, is, is I think I've become, I think from maybe from a young age, I was a lot more strategic because I was not trying to appeal to his emotions either. And I was like, okay, that's your obstacle, right? Like, your obstacle is not having the finances to allow me to go. But what if I could figure out how to pay for it, then you wouldn't have a problem. And he was like, yeah, well, sure. He was, you know, at the end, like a 17 year old kid, how is she going to figure out how to pay for her education there? And like, I spent so much time applying for scholarships and grants. And, you know, I got a partial scholarship from the University of Missouri where I went to study. And then you know, some grants from other organizations. And, and I was actually able to figure out how to pay for my education without my parents having to take on that burden, the financial burden. And when all of that came together, I think he realized, he was like, okay, I mean, she really wants to go. She's figured this out. So there is nothing other than me supporting her now uh, on her journey. That's incredible. The audacious thing there, Zara, and it's really beautiful and inspiring, is you're such a big dreamer and a huge thinker and incredible passion. And then this incredible belief in yourself and, and then also the wherewithal to follow it through and stay committed. So did the, did the belief in yourself come? Are you always aware of that? And I love that you just acknowledged that your dad was aware that I, I, I always sensed that you might've had some issues, not, is that the right word? You know, with authority. Because I know that you've challenged people along the way, which is such a big part of the audacity. But that's what I was getting at. It's like, where did this come from? <laughs> you know, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, growing up in any society, but particularly in societies um, that are a little more traditional and gender roles are, you know, 
much stricter than here. Not in here, there are the same issues as well. I think you learn to sort of navigate that in different ways. And I think that that was a great sort of place to learn, like, you know, with my father, how to, you know, not talking about my father, who's an incredibly supportive man, but but also like, you know, he in, in, in the guise of like wanting to be protective and things like that. I did have to challenge his authority at, at many times. Yeah, but do it in a way that like I still had my relationship with him, but also was able to get what I wanted to do. It's incredible. You're a natural born communicator, which is a nice through line, you know, to what you've done as a creative. But I just want to go back to this because again, many of us spend decades learning what you apparently knew innately, which was how I, in order to get what I want and to succeed and pursue my dream, I, one, you identify the obstacle. I just probably would have been crying in my room, throwing a fit. And you instead, you know, were completely like on it and be strategic, but also this understanding that I need to meet my dad where he is in order for him to hear me and to get his buy-in and support and to move this forward. That's incredible. I mean, that's foundational. And again, takes many of us a much longer time to get there. Incredible. So now you've gone to J school in your Missouri. It's an incredible, you know, journalism school with an amazing reputation. When do we go from, you know, print journalism, which I presume is where you originally walk in the door studying and then realize, I think that my future is in being a visual storyteller. So, you know, I started there in the radio and television program and uh, I, I did two degrees in that. That was one and the other was international politics, which is conflict resolution. Uh, just something I've always been interested in. I can tell, by the way, because we're <laughs> yeah. like a natural born conflict resolver. Okay, keep going. Sorry, I interrupted. Yeah, and so, you know, I think that was a really, a really interesting experience. I think going to university to study radio and television uh, journalism, I think the most important lesson I learned from doing that for four years was that I didn't want to do that anymore, is that I didn't like it. What didn't you like, by the way? What specifically? Because you're still doing aspects of it, actually. Absolutely. But there's something within the limiting box, mm -hmm. I guess, or, or the way it was defined at the time. Yeah, and you know, television, television news is a formula. It is very specific. Mm -hmm. And going to, when, when you're on TV at a small news station in the Midwest, it's even more boxed. You've got to look a certain way. You've got to sound a certain way. You've got to communicate the news in, in, a, in a specific way. A specific way and all of that didn't feel authentic to me you know I, I felt like I didn't I was had I needed to change so much and become an entirely different person in order to fit into this media and it felt very uncomfortable and I, and I think I you know realized that if I had to do this then I would prefer dropping out rather than continuing this and, and that's a conversation I actually had with my professor in my final semester of senior year and I told him if I have to go to the newsroom for like next semester, I said, I'm just going to not graduate. And so he was like, well, what can I do in order to help you through this? And I was like, well, I just want to work on my documentary. Like I prefer just doing my own project rather than hosting the local news and doing these news packages. And he was like, well, you know, nobody has really done that before but you could talk to the news director of the station and see if he would be interested in maybe working on a, on a documentary for them for the semester instead and I did that and, and you know I'm really thankful he agreed and so that's kind of what I did instead of going in every day reporting the news on tv I actually just worked on my documentary for, for the semester 
And, you know, that's when I realized, I was like, you know, I, I love telling stories. I love the visual medium, but I want to be able to tell stories in a way that feels authentic to me without having to fit into specific boxes. And I think like documentary filmmaking at that time gave me that freedom you know, to craft my, to craft the narrative that I wanted to craft a narrative that, you know, I believed in. So I'm hearing that you're consistently and successfully creating opportunity for yourself. And the way you're doing that is by having the confidence and the wherewithal to ask, which means speaking up, which means tapping into your voice and doing that in a way that you're, you're meeting the person where they are. That's a really beautiful and powerful thing to acknowledge because you, you become your own case study. So what was the first documentary about, by the way? So I actually made the first documentary I ever worked, worked on uh, was about my lovely friend, Max, who is a person with disabilities and he lost both of his legs in an accident. And I actually, you know, spoke about and the entire documentary, you know, tracks his journey and like I created these animations at the at the beginning. And, and this is back like in 2013. That's when I graduated. I did these animations at the beginning to show his to, to animate his accident, how he lost his legs, he got paralyzed. But then all of the things that he's been able to do despite his disabilities and then also, you know, the, the laws around disabilities in the state of Missouri, in particular in the city of Columbia, that make it so difficult for somebody like him to you know, go about his life. So when did you start to tap into the idea that I want to tell the stories of underrepresented people and communities and then figure out how to do that successfully? Because individually, those two things, documentaries are hard to begin with. Telling the stories of underrepresented people you know, not easy. I mean, we, whatever, best intentions, but there's a lot of resistance. How did you figure this out and how did you put it together? And, and did, when did you tap into the ways I have to do this in order to be successful at it? And by me, that I mean, it's like, you know, people paying for it, people saying yes, having a platform, getting it out there. Well, you know, I, I don't think it was, it was an intentional choice. I, I don't think I, I decided one day that I'm going to tell the stories of underrepresented people. I think my entire life, you know, wherever I've lived in the world, I have belonged to the underrepresented group. You know, growing up in India, uh, I grew up Muslim, a Muslim woman, and we are a minority there. And if anybody's following Indian news and politics, they know how actually how, how bad the situation currently is for minorities in the country. Uh, and you're always aware about, you know, your status in, in, in society. Also growing up, you know, I grew up during... Uh, the invasion of Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, and my family is, everybody in my family is very political. We read the newspaper every morning, watch the, the news together, watch CNN International, watch BBC, watch Al Jazeera. And there was this, I think since I was a kid, there was this uh, recognition that what I was seeing on TV was actually very different than my personal experiences. And, you know, the, the, the Muslim women that were being shown and the Muslim people that were being shown on TV were so different than my experiences of those people that I were interacting in, in my communities. Like all the women I grew up with, incredibly strong. Like, you know, I am who I am because of my mother and my grandmother and her sisters. They, we're not oppressed. <laughs> you know, all of those stereotypes that you associate with, with Muslim women was, you know, was something that I personally was not 
had not experienced. But those were not the stories that were being told at all. Never see, never saw that re represented on TV. I think from then there was this understanding that you know, if my my father told me if you want to change what you're seeing, you've got to be part of that in order. You've got to be part of that industry in order to change it. So I think like all of those things are so part of who I am that when I do decide to tell stories, those are the stories that I'm gravitated to because I feel an intimacy to them. So if I was coming to you for advice, which I have a feeling people reach out to you all the time now, you know, what, what are some of the, you know, maybe the top three steps that you would suggest to someone, here are the things that you need to do if you want to do this, if you want to do what I'm doing? Well, I would say firstly is, you know, make sure that you're listening to people listening to their stories. Mm. I think as storytellers, whether whether we're using, using the visual form, audio form, or text form, we, we have this urge to be like, I want to tell your story. But do you need to be the one telling their story? Maybe the, the person that you're listening to already has the capability of telling their stories. There's something you can do in order to uplift their stories. You know, I think as storytellers, you have the... You, there's definitely a power dynamic there. And I think, you know, to be able to realize that uh, people who are sharing their stories are, are you know, I think you've got to listen to them and give them the space, maybe whether, whether it's this form of collaboration, not always are they going to be able to tell their story, but can you collaborate with them? How do you bring them into the process of storytelling even more? I think that to me is the biggest learning over, you know, over time in my career that I've had. Wait, as you're talking about that, I, you know, I'm very aware in the space that a key to being a, a really good documentarian is to build trust with your subjects. And that's what you're just, so you're tapping into the idea of building trust through listening. Are there other ways or what are the other ways that you build trust with people? Well, I think building trust also comes down to access, access to the technology that you're using in order to tell stories, you know, so. Ooh, how's that? That's interesting. So, you know, a lot of the stories that I have been telling more recently have been with much more like, you know, higher end technologies in, in its, you know, and access like virtual reality, augmented reality, you know, like all of these more technical mediums, formats of storytelling. And, you know, the, the assumption, like, I think a lot of the times when, when I started first working in these immersive texts, in the immersive text space, it was this, this attitude that, oh, they won't get the text, so let's just record their stories and then we'll do what we want to do with it in post. You know, we'll figure out how we want to tell it. But it's really important to make sure that the people that you're collaborating with understand how the virtual reality camera works, how it's recording the images, what does the post of something like that what look like. And they might not get it and, and they might, you know, they're never going to, might never do it again. But I think it's important for for us to have the humility to be able to explain to them how those things work so they understand, they can consent, you know, I think with awareness that they want to be, their story should be told in that format, in that medium. Uh, and I think that's also a way to build trust. That's come up a lot in my career in coaching uh, a number of people, but also experts. It's a great reminder to all sorts of creatives to actually take the time to explain how anything is going to work because there's often a tendency to say, don't worry about it. I'm going to take, I, I take care of it. You don't have to worry about that. But it's interesting because, but the subconscious doesn't respond well to that because especially many successful people got there, not by letting things go, but by having a, a measure of control. And, and so 
you just tapped into something. You're going to get a much better performance out of someone or better interview, greater participation. When you say exactly like, we're going to show up on set at eight o'clock in the morning. This thing is going to happen. We're going to turn on the lights. You're going to do this. I'm going to say this and, and this is how we're going to walk through it. And then the brain can prepare. So that's a really actually a powerful foundational technical reminder for a number of people who are creative and produce. But I want to go back to the um, virtual reality. And I didn't even think about this component in your work in immersive technology. So would you mind walking me through the conversation of what, what, how you would explain how that's different than, you know, a, a traditional camera? Sure. So, you know, when we did Still Here, which was, you know, the, the project mm -hmm. that premiered at Sundance about incarceration and gentrification in Harlem, the, the start, the pre-production of the project was the, the first thing we did is we found uh, uh, an organization, Women's Prison Association, that works with women who have recently uh, been released from jails and prisons. And, you know, we worked with uh, nine women from that organization in order to craft the story that became still here. And, and the first workshop that I did with them, I actually took the VR headset and I took VR cameras with them and I took, like, you know, storyboard scripts, you know, blank ones so they could see what a storyboard looks like. And I put them all in a headset. I was like, you know, this is what VR is. This is what a video looks like in VR. This is a VR camera. This is how it films. Like, you know, when it, a video comes out, it looks flat. And, you know, just going through the process with them, like storyboarding in VR is a bit different from traditional storyboarding in, in these ways. So just like the first the first workshop or the conversation that I had with them was just introducing to them to like, we want to work with you to tell your story, but this is the format we're using in this format. This is how it looks and this is how it works. What was it like the first time you put on that VR headset? Oh, I mean, it was, I, I remember putting it on and being like, oh, this is so cool. Like everybody else's reaction to it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also remember being like, oh, I wonder what else, you know, can we do? What type of, what different types of stories we can tell in this rather than stories that we're seeing. Like, that was definitely the reason why I got into uh, the medium. Mm. Wow. Because I remember the first time I did, it was met someone who was globally using VR to reach out to kids in underrepresented and economically disadvantaged places to have access to engage them in things around the world that they might not otherwise see, or even just cultural things within their own town. And you're like, wow, the capabilities are enormous. How do you use augmented reality in what you're doing right now? Uh, so Still Here Project also had a component of uh, AR, and it was a story about a woman coming back to her neighborhood in Harlem and seeing that her neighborhood has changed. So we have these AR filters, which when you click on it and you walk through a door, you actually see the sort of a street in Harlem recreated through the filter. So you're actually being able to see the changes that have happened over time. Wow. What a giant permission slip and a big whoa for younger creatives to realize that the capabilities we have that didn't exist even very recently, because you're tapping into that allowed you to create something you couldn't have created a few years ago. Absolutely. You know, for me, I think like, you know, I've realized also is not to be wowed by the tech, but to figure out how mm. the tech can work for you and the stories you want to tell. Like I think, you know, because we're like, Oh, it's so cool. Now we can tell stories using, you know, AR. So all our stories are going to be AR. That's not true. It's like, does that story actually become better if I tell it using AR? And I think that's, you know, something that I've been more, much more intentional now is making sure that, you know, the 
it's not about the tech, but it is that the story has now, I'm able to tell a story I could not have told if it wasn't for that tech. It just enables me to be a better storyteller. Okay, that is a great nugget. I love that. Zara, what's next for you? What is getting you excited right now? Well, I'm working, uh, you know, for Al Jazeera, we're, we're focusing on the role of women in football for this year. And, you know, that's, and I'm really excited about that because I, I love football. And when I, when I say football, I mean soccer, American soccer, right? You have the FIFA World Cup coming up at the end of this year. And, uh, you know, I was a football player all my life and, you know, I ran track and I'm super athletic. And, and so to be able to like, tell the story about football, but to tell it through the lens of women and women being left behind in this sport. I think it's something I'm really excited about. So we have a video series that, you know, we're hoping to work on. And then we also have an immersive exhibit that uh, we're creating for the FIFA World Cup Museum in Doha uh, for the end of the year. So, What would surprise me about that story? Because obviously in the U.S., American football soccer has been a great opportunity for girls, you know, for generation. And obviously American women are dominant in that sport globally in a way that men are not. So, but I love these stories. I have a feeling you're, you're tapping into a lot of um, inspiration as well. So where in the world, are, you know, when you're finding stories that would be whatever surprising or exciting, or like you would never have known that in such and such a town in this country, football rules for girls and women. I mean, actually, you know, football is a, is a pretty big sport for men and women in, in a lot of the global south. You know, that's what, you know, even though I grew up in India and cricket is the main sport there, but everybody plays football too. Uh, it's just such an easy sport to play because you just need a, need a ball, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, you can go to places that are in conflict and, and kids will still be playing football there. Uh, what I, but to your point, you always see boys playing in movies. Absolutely. You see men playing yeah. in movies. You do not see girls yeah. playing. Was one you do not see women. Ended like Beckham. I don't know if you ever saw it. Oh, <laughs> yeah, please! So when that movie came out, I was like, "Oh my god, that is me!" <laughs> I like identified with that movie. <laughs> okay, that's really sweet. That's oh, I loved. Okay, but okay, so yes, right. But why don't we see more of that until now with you? I think because that you know the women's football is just funded as like has so like mm. when it comes to it comes to any sport right like you see the promotion for it and support for it is where the money is and just women's football just doesn't have that much funding or doesn't attract as much money as 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 men's football. But I mean I think that's for any any sport right. I think any, any group sport. Point taken. As you're working on this and producing this and creating this, will it be, will all this around women's football be available digitally and online for those of us who are not going to the World Cup in person? Yes. Okay, fantastic. So we will update on this. So where can we find you, Zara? Well, you can find me on my Twitter. I'm not, I'm not very active on social media. Uh, I do use Twitter in order to read the news, but I don't post very much. But you can definitely follow me and have a conversation with me on Twitter. Uh, you can find me on Instagram as well. Uh, and what are your handles? And by the way, can we just talk about the audacity of being 
unapologetic about not being on the socials, <laughs> which everybody else is, you know, beating ourselves up and you're like, yeah, whatever. Okay. So what are, what are your, what's your Twitter handle and your Instagram? Okay. I am going to look it up so I can give you my Twitter handle. <laughs> well, uh, my Twitter handle is, is R X A H R A, or you can just find me as Zahra Rasul. And I think that's, Maybe similar on Instagram as well. Oh, I, I, since I follow you, I can tell you it's X-A-A-R-A. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay, that's hilarious. It's one more reason why j'adore you, Zara. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining. This is exciting, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, everything that's coming up for you and certainly the Women's Football Project. And I want to thank you for listening to Camera Ready and Able. Please visit ableintermedia.com and download my free book, 12 Tips for Success on Camera. And as always, please be sure to hit the subscribe button if you haven't already.